Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, Lumpen talked about the political influence of Breitbart in Europe, about Nick Kay's experimental show, Lil Black, to a nonprofit trying to link tech with other 501c3s, and about the curious pull criminals and murderers have on Americans. All this plus the Trump Diaries and more on the Lumpen Week in Review for March 17th, 2017. Bad at Sports talked with Nick Kay, who has a new performance piece, Little Black, which will be staged this weekend. Nick Kay's autobiographical experimental solo performance is influenced by queer ballroom culture, live punk shows, and more. Bad at Sports talks about art with artists and critics every Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. With me in the studio, I'm joined by... Dana Bassett. And Ryan Peter Miller. Uh, and we are lucky to have as our guest in the studio this morning, uh, Nick Kay. Hey. Welcome. I'm just curious. Like, I haven't seen you. I mean, I know mm-hmm. Nick, mm-hmm. full disclosure. Where have you been? What have you been up to? I've been all over. I mean, after I debuted Little Black at Lynx Hall, um, there was a showcase. I was an artist in residence When there. was that? That was 2015? Yeah, September of so 2015. So it's been two years. Mm-hmm. I did Acre that summer. Um, which was awesome. And then I premiered the show and I've been traveling ever since. I was like in Chicago, I'm from New York and I've been in Chicago now for like five years. Love Chicago. But I was also really interested in how I could build more support, more financial support for the work by traveling. Well, and um, so you've toured now. Yeah. Since extensively since then so I've and that's been, what you've been working on you've been touring little black since yes and, and doing like workshops in between getting people to where'd move. you go um berlin uh toronto i went to atlanta twice california um uh, new york boston no. new york yes mm-hmm. what type of venues are you performing this time. Girl, it's so many different types. <laughs> it's like um, Afropunk was supposed to be in Atlanta in like 2015. It didn't happen. There was supposed to be a hurricane that never came. Right. But they were being cautious. So we did like a DIY performance. Me and another artist for Shayla Marie Brown who was in town in the spirit of punk culture. I we just made it happen. right? So we did that in Atlanta in a club. It was like a club. We just made it work. Um... I've performed in Chicago excerpts of it on a party bus at Subterranean. <laughs> well, at that was part of Chances, right? Out of mm. Chances. For that was like the Chances, yeah. Big thing. Final mm-hmm. In Berlin, it was like, if you know Berlin, a lot of DIY spaces. It was like um, somebody's garden house, probably, that was turned into an art space that was like probably the size of this room or maybe a little bit Somewhat bigger. Smaller. Yeah. <laughs> In Boston, it was at the American Repertory Theater. Um, <laughs> That's different. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's like galleries, DIY spaces, theaters. Um, I performed for Activate Chicago on Jackson and Holman oh. last year. It was like me, a microphone, and generator, and a speaker, and bus drivers mostly, <laughs> who, who, who like sat and watched 30 minutes of the show. It was amazing. Did you book it as a tour? Like, like all dates were kind of known ahead, or were you figuring this out as you went? I'm a manifester. So in, in like <laughs> the words of Oprah, I'm very like, 
put it out there and then make it happen. So I had one date for sure, and um, Open TV, uh, which is like a network of artists who make TV, make TV on the web. Um, so Amar, who kind of runs that, reached out to me and said, we would love to support the tour by um, giving you some money to make a series. So that was kind of my basis. I was like, okay, there is some financial support for this. So I know that I'll be filming it, and let's just see who would be interested. And from there, I was able to book because I had that. Well, and having having the open TV film, I assume, was helpful in terms of, like, promoting to people, like, what is this? Because... That's like going to be my next question mm-hmm. is what is Little Black? Which yes. it is having seen excerpts and parts of it. Mm-hmm. There's so much that goes into the performance. Yes. And it's hard to ca- – like I wouldn't say like it's a dance mm-hmm. necessarily because mm-hmm. you're generating – Yeah, it's a experimental solo performance. There you go. That's okay. – Yeah. I mean – Open TV allowed me to just have the finances to say that I will take one job and then see what happens, right? So, like, I was thinking about myself as, like, a musician in terms of, like, structurally how I wanted to plan the tour. I was like, okay, I I know more about music business from watching VH1 and, like, MTV (laughs) and, like, people sleeping on couches and, like, trying to figure it out that way. Um, I don't have as much transparency with, like, how performance artists or visual artists book those sort of things. So the money that Open uh, TV provided was, like, seed. Um, What what did you have in your writer then? In my rider, I didn't even have a rider. Right. Do and you have no one green now? M&Ms. I have no. one now. You have oh, yeah. one now. I'm all, good oh, for you. Yeah. All of those things. And, and, and the like, tour T-shirt, right? Yeah. Listing all the places on the back. Yeah, Nick that's, 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 that's fill it that's out as coming. you go. That is definitely something that's coming. I was Nick like, had I have a to tour go. poster. I have a poster. I have a poster. The T-shirt is coming. Just I, like, for now, I'm like, I'm gonna wear it and let's see if people <laughs> want it. But I just feel so proud that I made it happen. I'm like, I'm hardcore. It's, I, mean, I feel good about it. So, yes, I'm talking about this thing. You guys don't even know what it is. Yeah, let's. I just pulled up my website, full transparency, to just read it to you. So, Little Black is an experimental solo performance influenced by New York City gay and ballroom culture. Live punk shows, buto, and praise dance. Little Black is a story about a fairy boy, child of God, little black girl, performer, and activist. The story plays out through a series of biographical moments that are equal parts narrative and dream. And I would add autobiographical. <laughs> you would add to your yeah. I would, yeah. I would add to what I just said more yeah. about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, yeah, that was actually a question I had for you is like when you're in the character, you're moving through a lot mm-hmm. of different characters. And mm-hmm. I guess you just said it's autobiographical, so mm-hmm. maybe I've just answered that question, mm-hmm. but you feel like you are all these characters. These are are these characters being pulled from other people as well, and like, yeah, I think the thing about performance and most things is like when you get super specific and you um, hone in on like what is that moment, like why is that moment important, then it becomes universal, right? So because I am so specifically going back to these like particular times in my life, I feel like people are able to relate. To that because I'm not just playing like some general right. situation. It tends to work that way. So, but then at the same time, there in terms of how form how it, that articulates itself performatively, it's not like um, 
it's a little bit more abstract, right? So you wouldn't necessarily be able to say that person's in a bedroom mm -hmm. with their mother having a conversation. I'm like mixing several different types of performative um, techniques. Well, and your, your style is so kind of fluid and it mm -hmm. feels, even if it's not, it feels when you're seeing it like very spontaneous and mm -hmm. improvisational. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, has Little Black changed yeah. since you've been touring it? Yeah, I've had a script the whole time, but I think through the tour I've gotten um, a, lo a lot of support, which has helped with my confidence, which has also helped with like my emotional capacity. Like I think something that uh, a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to art making and performance is like having the emotional availability to go to difficult places and making a piece that's about like um, fighting against society's norms and being on the margins, specifically in a time where as a country we've been going through some really hard public um, racial inequalities, injustices, gender injustices. So it's like um, I've been able to grow my ability to go to those places through performing and building community around the work. And like when I did it at a Lynx Hall, I would say it was like a skeleton. Mm -hmm. And like as I've toured it, nervous system muscles you know so it's like a, a body i That's feel like, like an exciting mm -hmm. it's great yeah so you're happy with where the piece is kind of yes at right now yeah i'm currently in tech and last night um i was looking at the script and i was like this is literally where i wanted to be in 2015 and sometimes it, it, it's like that right like you graduate high school and you want to already have like a PhD <laughs> or you think you have a PhD right you're like I've done so much I'm done with school but you need those years well and a lot of artists don't have that opportunity to kind of live within their work for an extended period of time and like shape it yeah and I can I mean I'm excited so let's just yeah get to the chase which is the piece is coming back yeah yeah. Um, it's been almost two, a year and a half. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I um, got the opportunity through uh, D-Case, through the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, to be a part of the On Edge Festival, which is happening right now. And, um, yeah, I'll be performing this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Fantastic. And if people want to know where... Um how can they find information about those performances? Yeah, you can find information about my performances on Facebook uh, at OK Nick K or on the City of Chicago's website if you just uh, type into Google D Case on Edge Festival. Nick Lowell's, the executive director of British anti racist group Hope Not Hate, was featured on the Labor Express this week. Lowell spoke powerfully about the agenda behind Breitbart's expansion into European news and how the organization is a political one masquerading as journalism. Labor Express airs every Sunday night at 8 p.m. with host Jeremy Lucero. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. Nick Lowell is the chief executive of the U.K.-based anti-racist, anti-fascist organization called Hope Not Hate. Nick is currently touring the U.S. to meet with like-minded organizations and individuals here, Hope Not Hate has recently released a new report entitled Breitbart, A Right-Wing Plot to Shape Europe's Future. The report examines the role of the so-called Breitbart News Network in fomenting racist, misogynist, and xenophobic politics around the world. 
The impact of Breitbart in the U.S. cannot be overestimated with former Breitbart editor Steve Bannon playing the role of Trump's Svengali in the White House. Breitbart is increasingly having a similar impact in European politics. Nick spoke on this topic during a visit here in Chicago last week. We were probably as guilty as anyone that we didn't really understand the significance of Breitbart for, for, for too long. Um, Breitbart has been active, had a base in the UK for the last three years, um, and we often just dismissed it as this kind of bit of a crazy website, lots of stupid stories, hysterical, you know, abusing people. Um, and I guess it was really only with the kind of the past 12 months, and particularly the probably past nine months, where you saw Steve Bannon getting involved with Trump, suddenly kind of Breitbart came to our attention more, and we started to, 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 to look at it, and look at its role in, inside the British um, political scene. I think the first point that we, we really make in this report is that we cannot look at Breitbart as just a, a right-wing media operation. It is a political operation. You know, the way it does the media, the way it propagandizes, it, it's doing for political purposes. You know, to undermine, to spread division, to spread lies, whatever. It's all calculated. Now in the UK, as I say, they came over in 2014, set up a, set up a base. And I think to understand its role, you've got to go back to the founding of Breitbart, um, where the founders, Andrew Breitbart and a couple of others said, the purpose of this operation was to change the world. This is a political project. They came in and have largely been responsible in the UK for the kind of right-wing shift and the, 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 we got this kind of political party called the UK Dependence Party. Most people probably would have seen a man called Nigel Farage on the on US media. Up until that point, up until Breitbart's kind of intervention in the UK, it was largely a single issue party about pulling the UK out of of the European Union. It didn't really have any other politics beyond that. Um, but it was the intervention of Breitbart um, plus the growing relationship with people like Farage at the top of this party that suddenly began to adopt more traditional kind of right-wing views, more anti-immigrant views, quite hostile views against um, Islam and, and stuff. And just like we saw over here, you know, Breitbart sets up, the, the, the editor becomes the chief of staff of, of Farage in the run-up to the, 20, with the general election in 2015. Most of the people um, writing for Breitbart were were active members of this 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 kind of right wing party. Last year we 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 kind of had a vote to leave the European Union. Shocked a lot of people. Brexit, we call it. Um, at its at the heart of the campaign to pull Britain out of the EU was Breitbart again. And more importantly, Breitbart is one part of a kind of much bigger conservative operation with people like. Um, Robert Mercer. So not only was Breitbart were the kind of attack dogs of the kind of um, the campaign to pull the UK out of the European Union, but but uh, Mercer's op uh, operations like uh, Cambridge a Analytica, which is kind of psychoops, psychoops, and it's about understanding people's emotion and turning people's emotion. Suddenly that was provided free of charge to the to the campaign, and and I think that. What they did in the, what they did in the UK 
and particularly with Brexit, inspire them over here. Um, what they're trying to do now is to move into other countries. They're trying to set operation, op setting up operations in Germany and in France. Um, but a lot of it is about undermining, undermining their full stories. And I'll, I'll show you, I mean, a good example of the, the effect that they have and the role they play. A couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump made some claim that there'd been some terrorist attack in uh, Sweden. <laughs> Obviously, there was nothing to it. The Swedish government and Swedish politicians all piled in to say this is complete lies. Um, Trump then kind of finds, you know, well, he's talking about something else, really, whatever. But then organisations like Breitbart come in. Day after day, they're pushing stories about, about um, uh, violent attacks, rapes, criminality in Sweden. Now, first of all, this, this dominates the political agenda for days. You know, but I'm sure over here, certainly in Europe, and we were talking about it for days and days, and it was just like one little comment by Trump, and then suddenly the attack dogs of Breitbart get off. But there's something more going on because Sweden, it's, there's no reason, there's no um, no mistake why they're going for Sweden. Sweden has traditionally been the most seen as the most liberal country in Europe, most open-minded, most tolerant. So by attacking Sweden. They're trying to attack. They're trying to attack some of the kind of, you know, the kind of model of social democracy. It's no surprise now that Breitbart's going for Germany. Now, if you look at the political landscape in Europe, Germany is probably the kind of main country now holding those values of liberal democracy now, as both other countries are falling away or involved in, in turmoil, political uh, uh, political turmoil. Germany and, and Merkel, the leader kind of holding the ground, and that's why Breitbart, literally in the UK, day after day are going after the Germans, making up stories about kind of, you know, attack, one story they did at the beginning of the year was that there was a, a, a thousand strong mob attacking a, a Christian church, a Muslim mob, coming up stories about mass rapes and mass sexual assaults. Often these stories got no, no truth in them at all, but they put them out there, and then we all, and liberal society spend days pushing back, and it just is in the is in the newspapers day after day after day. And of course, you ask most people on the street, they think of they, they think of you know sex attacks in Germany, or they think of violence attacks in Sweden, and that's just how it permeates. So I kind of think that it, you know we have to really understand what what these people are up to because um, I really do <coughs> believe you know that they have a very dangerous agenda. The Trump Diaries, Day Forty Eight. March 9th, the Justice Department declined to confirm a statement from the White House that Trump was not the target of a counterintelligence investigation. Officials also said the White House had not relied on any information from the Justice Department. Asked whether Trump was, in fact, the target of an investigation, a Justice Department official said, no comment. And EPA Chief Scott Pruitt said he does not think carbon dioxide is a primary contributor to global warming, claiming there is, quote, tremendous disagreement about the issue. The remarks contradict his agency's own findings on greenhouse gas emissions. EPA's website notes that carbon dioxide is the primary greenhouse gas that is contributing to recent climate change. Earth's 2016 temperatures were the warmest ever. And the Republican drive to repeal the Affordable Care Act advanced as two House committees approved broad legislation to undo the law and replace it with a more modest system of tax credits and a role 
rollback of Obama's Medicaid expansion. Democrats said the bill would rip health insurance away from millions of Americans and increase costs for many others, and they have the backing of a growing number of senators, health care providers, and some conservatives. And Julian Assange said that WikiLeaks would work with Apple, Google, and other technology companies to fix flaws that have allowed the CIA to hack into the devices they make. Assange also accused the CIA of withholding information about the vulnerabilities the agency was exploiting in American technology, even after it realized that documents describing the flaws had been leaked many weeks ago. Now, many security experts say that the WikiLeaks dump actually showed how secure encrypted communications are, and others questioned the timing of the dump, noting it distracted people from the continuing scandal over Trump's ties to Russia. Trump's administration, normally so strident on leaks, did not comment on the WikiLeaks dump at all. Day 49, March 10th. In a bizarre new twist, Michael Flynn, the disgraced national security advisor who was fired by Donald Trump, had acted as a foreign agent for Turkey's government in exchange for more than $500,000 during last year's campaign, even as he worked for Trump. Flynn signed a contract for that work just three weeks after leading the locker up chants at the Republican convention. Without disclosing his financial interest, Flynn also published an op-ed article on election day, arguing that Turkey was misunderstood and assailing a Turkish cleric as, quote, a shady Islamic mullah and a radical Islamist. The White House later claimed Trump was not aware Flynn was going to have to register as a foreign agent for his lobbying work. And Trump moved to sweep away the remaining vestiges of the Obama administration's prosecutors at the Justice Department, ordering 46 holdover United States attorneys to tender their resignations immediately. That included Preet Bahara, the United States attorney in Manhattan. The firings were a surprise, especially for Mr. Bahara, who has a reputation for prosecuting public corruption cases. In November, Mr. Bahara met Trump at Trump Tower and told reporters afterwards that he'd been asked to stay on. A Justice Department spokeswoman said that all remaining attorneys had been asked to resign, leaving their deputy attorneys, who are career officials, in place in an acting capacity. It is not unusual for a new president to replace attorneys appointed by a predecessor. In 1993, the Clinton administration fired all 93 United States attorneys on the same day. But the calls from the acting attorney general arose a day after Sean Hannity, the Fox News commentator who is a strong supporter of Trump, said on his evening show that Trump needed to, quote, purge Obama holdovers from the federal government. Hannity portrayed them as saboteurs from the so-called deep state who were leaking secrets to hurt Trump. Day 50, March 11th. Preet Bharara, the New York Attorney General who refused to tender a resignation when asked, was fired today by the Trump administration. That move was met with dismay from New York Republicans, with Assemblyman Stephen F. McLaughlin tweeting, big mistake. Now, Trump also reportedly tried to speak to Bahara directly. That was a call Bahara refused, citing Justice Department protocols. Meanwhile, Michigan Representative John Conyers, the House Judiciary Committee's top Democrat, requested on Saturday that the committee receive a summary of probes linked to Trump, whether they touch on his administration, transition, campaign, and organization, so, quote, that we can understand the implication of this weekend's firings. Conyers said he suspected Bahara could be reviewing a range of potential improper activity emanating from Trump Tower and the Trump campaign, as well as entities with financial ties to the president or the Trump organization. It was also recently revealed that Bahara's office was investigating the financial terms of settlements of sexual harassment claims against Fox News by its employees. Trump's shortlist to replace Bahara includes Mark McCaskey, who is former Fox News chief Roger Ailes's personal lawyer. Day 51, March 12th. John McCain said that Trump must either prove his claim that Obama tapped the phones in Trump Tower during last year's election or drop the accusation. McCain said, quote, the president has one of two choices, either retract or provide the information that the American people deserve. I have no reason to believe that the charge is true, but I also believe the president could clear this up in a minute. And Stephen King, an Iowa congressman, posted on Twitter, quote, we can't restore our civilization with someone else's babies. 
The tweet was praised by both white supremacist David Duke and the Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi website. It was quickly criticized by many Republicans, including Speaker Paul Ryan, whose office said he, quote, clearly disagrees with King. But King did not back down, telling an Iowa station, quote, this isn't about race. King said his comments were, quote, about our stock, our country, our culture, and our civilization, and that, quote, we need to have enough babies to replace ourselves. King believes that abortion is a plot to allow large-scale illegal immigration. Day 52, March 13th. The House Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare would cause 24 million people to lose health insurance within a decade and 14 million people within a year, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. The House Republican legislation, which was released last week, would repeal major parts of Obama's health care law. The bill would save the government $337 billion, which is a big win for conservatives, but that also means under the budgeting rules that Republicans are using to rush through the bill to repeal the health care law, the measure could not be filibustered by Democrats in the Senate. The repeal also would mount to a massive tax cut for the ultra-wealthy. The repeal would give a staggering $600 billion over a decade to those making $1 million a year or more in what is being called a giant transfer of wealth from the very poor to the ultra-wealthy. In related news, Donald Trump is said to be resistant to the idea of calling this plan, quote, Trump care. And Sean Spicer said on Monday that Trump, quote, doesn't really think that Obama, quote, tapped his phone personally, seeming to walk back Trump's explosive and unsubstantiated claim that his predecessor ordered an illegal wiretap of Trump Tower. Spicer told reporters, quote, he doesn't really think that President Obama went up and tapped his phone personally. Spicer tried to argue that Trump had accused the Obama administration of general surveillance activities and not a literal wiretap, even though Trump himself had used the term wiretapping in one of several tweets, making the claim without evidence. Spicer claimed the fact that Trump put quotation marks around the words wiretapping in one tweet was proof that he was not speaking literally. Trump actually tweeted wiretapping without quotes. And a New York real estate company owned by the family of Trump's son-in-law is negotiating to sell a $400 million stake in a Fifth Avenue flagship skyscraper to a Chinese insurance company with ties to leading families in the Communist Party. The Kushner family, owners of the tower, reap a large financial windfall, even as Jared Kushner, a senior advisor to Trump as well as his son-in-law, oversees American foreign policy. The deal is said to be unusually favorable to the Kushners and is also creating a large conflict of interest issue. The building post-renovations will be worth $7 billion according to a prospectus. Day 53, March 14th. Some of Trump's tax returns were leaked to a reporter, David Johnston, who then aired them on Rachel Maddow's MSNBC show. The forum show Trump wrote off more than $100 million in business losses to reduce his federal taxes in 2005. Trump paid an effective tax rate of 25%. By claiming losses, Trump apparently saved millions of dollars in taxes. But the forms also showed that Trump paid the vast bulk of his taxes under the so-called alternative minimum tax, which Trump wants to abolish. That tax serves as a backstop to the ordinary income tax and is intended to prevent wealthy Americans from paying no income tax at all. Had the alternative minimum tax not been used by Trump, he would have only paid 3% income tax, which is in fact less than someone making $33,000 a year would make. Trump and the White House reacted angrily to the release, with Trump tweeting, quote, does anybody really believe that a reporter who nobody ever heard of, quote, went to his mailbox and found my tax returns? Fake news. The reporter is in fact a Pulitzer Prize winner with the New York Times who has known Trump personally for over 30 years and has written two books on Trump's life. And the White House also, before the material was aired on Rachel Maddow's show, confirmed the tax returns were genuine. 
and nervous Senate Republicans are seeking changes to the GOP bill to replace Obamacare. Senators reportedly told Trump they wanted to see a lower insurance cost for poor, older Americans and an increase in funding for states with high populations of hard-to-insure people. The CBO found the bill as written would cost 24 million people to lose health insurance. Politico also reported Wednesday. Like what you hear? Full episodes, archives, and more are available at Mixcloud.com forward slash Lumpin Radio. The Klonsky brothers spoke to progressive activists and strategists Brian Street and Joanna Klonsky about the challenges facing the progressive movement in the age of Trump. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, we're back. You're listening to WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. Michael, introduce our guests. Well, uh, we have two two uh, my favorite people on this morning, and uh, one of them, uh, Joanna Klonsky. Uh, you may recognize the last name. Uh, and It's a coincidence. It's a coincidence. And Brian Sleet, and these are, these are two of the sharpest uh, uh, political... Uh, consultants, uh, political strategists, and communications people we have here in this city. Uh, the two of you, the two of you have uh, have collaborated on several several political campaigns uh, recently. Uh, Wait, I thought we were just going to talk about NCAA basketball today. <laughs> well, then That's that it? would leave me out because I haven't been watching any of it. <laughs> All right, sorry, we're, Dad. Continue. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to we're going to we we brought you here to to uh, tell our audience uh, how we can actually win political elections, and does it matter if we do? <laughs> Those are my questions yeah. to you two, you know. So, so uh, Small thing. So you've had some, you've had some vic- victories in the last uh, year, huh? Yeah, me and, me and Brian are sort of like an informal, secret, not-so-secret uh, conspiracy We won't team. tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> we no, worked, we've nobody's worked together listening a lot to this. <laughs> <laughs> we've worked together a lot over the years on a, on a number of campaigns, it's not an official arrangement, but we're friends and we work well together and we think alike. And so we tend to end up working on stuff together. And sometimes we win. Actually, well, we win a lot. So actually, yeah, like she, <laughs> she's way too humble. Look, the reality is, is that we break through some of the uh, the craziness and get to the basics of politics. Because part of the thing is that if you care about things and care about issues... It doesn't matter as much if you don't win, okay? And so doing the things that you actually have to do to win is important. So what are some of those things you have to do to win? Um, without sharing, without giving away too much of your secrets here, you know? <laughs> so what I would say is is that— What's the formula? It's not a formula as much, as, but it's just doing what you have to do. Like, I think sometimes people get too caught up in the issues and forget that, like— Elections are emotional. People vote for people, okay? And if you don't find a way to connect with people, then all those great and wonderful things that you want to do, you're not going to be able to get done because you're not going to be in the position. So, you know, don't try to make everybody agree with you on every issue that they don't understand and they don't actually care about because they're taking care of their kids (laughs) and going to work every day. Instead, share your values. Share who you are as a person. Get your name out there, and then we can actually have a chance. I think Brian and I are both – we're both drawn to the kind of candidate – like 
candidates who have who are able to demonstrate that they're highly principled and have a strong moral compass, especially in Chicago politics, it's really easy to get jaded. And so it, the people who kind of come are able to break through for me are the ones who are like, no, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm jo- not just trying to get a job making $109,000 a year or whatever it is that, you know, in an, in an elected position just to hold a job. But the people who are actually trying to get in to make some real impact. So most, you know, well, actually, it wasn't most recent, but one of our more recent victories, Brian and I worked together on Kim Fox's campaign for yeah. state's attorney. That was a huge, high-profile race. And at first, when we both joined the campaign, we we weren't – I mean, we thought she had a shot, but she certainly was never the front-runner for that candidate, for that, for that campaign. But um, when it became clear that she was the candidate in the race who was highly principled, who had a vision, who had the experience um, – to steer us out of a crisis, then we started breaking through. Do you think Kim's Kim has been a disappointment, or, or are you glad? Are you pleased oh, at the so results? I'm so proud of everything yeah. Kim's doing. Yeah, right talk now. about it. What well, is she doing? So now? she she's doing amazing. Like you know, she is having the prosecutor's office not protest uh, people's bail when they can't afford it. Um, she's strengthening the wrongful convictions unit. Like, here's the thing. There's a lot to do and a lot to untangle, and so people have to understand that some of this is going to take time. But I'll tell you, my proudest moment in politics was when Joanna and I wrote the issues page on her website. (laughs) Okay? We've been, we got cussed out. It's a mundane, proud moment, Brian. (laughs) No, but, so here's the thing. We got cussed out about the issues page on that website. Because it was like, this is ridiculous liberal crap. And she doesn't seem like she's. This is so unrealistic. (laughs) Right. Like, because, like, I mean, we, like, it was, it was proudly putting up on your main website that we want to do this different. Okay. And so that's a mandate. And that was important. So, so the answer is yes. You're you've been pleased about the about Kim since she's been in I've office. Been a, I've been every time. I mean, I don't work for Kim anymore, but every time I see a headline about her in the news, I'm like, it's good news. Wow, she's doing what what she promised. She's actually following through on her promises, and that's notable. Now uh, we took a beating on the last mayor's race. How, uh, what's the, <laughs> what's the prospects for what's the prospects for getting uh, getting rid of uh, Rahm Emanuel? <sighs> Brian, you want to take that one? <laughs> Okay, so this is what I talk about often. Like, so my my biggest thing is is that progressives are gonna have to have a, uh, a awakening, okay, and they're gonna have to realize. And this is what I go around everywhere telling people is that white progressives are gonna have to realize that they're not as good at race as they think they are. <laughs> okay, um, you know I have an issue where I think that, like, the reason these large progressives' campaigns lose is because they don't look at black people as people. Mm-hmm. And they try to talk about, like, these issues, but they don't understand that, you know what, the grandmother whose grandson went to Harvard Law School and got a job at a big firm and works for a corporation, she's proud of him. She doesn't think he's evil. She doesn't think he's a sellout. She doesn't think he's all those things. And so when... You have white progressives telling successful black people that they're not black. It doesn't just alienate those people. It alienates the rest of the culture. And that's why you have a disconnection with people like Bernie Sanders or all these folks getting the black vote. And until we find a way to actually realize that there are racial issues in this city that black people, regardless of your economic status, have to deal with, 
you're not going to find a way to connect. And the second issue is, is that the progressive candidate has to prove that they love this city. And I mean, like, because you know what people care about more than closed schools or taxes or all this other stuff? is the Blackhawks and the Cubs and the Bears <laughs> and the whatever. Like, love this city. And, you know, and like, and I think people do, but they forget to say it. They forget to express it. And if you don't show that you love this city, you're going to have a very hard time winning the mayor of Chicago in this city. So, so bring that back to bring that back to the next mayor's race. So what does that mean? No, what it means is that what it means is that people are going to have to let go of their anger of Rahm Emanuel and try to win the race. Like my thing is like this: the whole Rahm Emanuel is evil doesn't work. Okay, I think you can argue at least in the black community you can argue that Rahm Emanuel means well. He's just incompetent. Like I, I like that's actually a working argument in the black community. I think Rahm is still beatable, but I think Brian's right that there's going to have to be a different approach. We've we've tried to beat him twice. Last time we took him to a runoff, a year ago at this time, if you would have, to, I would have told you there's no way Rahm Emanuel is getting reelected. Let's not forget where we were a year ago in this in the middle of the Laquan McDonald storm. Uh, Barbara Bird Bennett had been indicted. The, he had just re. Uh, passed the largest property tax increase in Chicago history. I mean, he was really on the ropes. His numbers were horrible. He seems to have steered himself somewhat back on course now. But I still think he's entirely beatable. The question is, who's the candidate? Yeah. Who's going to step up and do the work? And and how are they going to build a campaign that's competent and, you know, well-managed and, and able, and that actually does the work in the black community in particular? I think that's Brian's point is well-received. Here's the thing. It's like, I don't think that a bomb thrower is going to win Mayor of Chicago, okay? Because I think that at the end of the day, people, like, people understand that, like, while they may want certain things to be different, we have an absolutely amazing downtown, okay? The question is, is that can that Chicago become the rest of Chicago? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's come at the expense of the neighborhoods, though, right? But, but... That's like while that like while parts of that have been true, the fact of the matter is is that somebody who doesn't recognize or understand or appreciate like the amazingness of downtown, you know, like Maggie Daly Park, I always say Maggie Daly Park may have been a multi million dollar boondoggle, right? <laughs> Indeed. But yes. it's a very beautiful multi million dollar boondoggle. And if you go down in the summer, you see kids from all over the city playing. And that's the emotion part about politics that I think people miss sometimes. That is just like that family who's having a difficult time in a neighborhood that doesn't have anything for them to be able to say, I can pay $2.25, get on the train and go down here and let my kids play in a place like they never get to play. And they get to have water features and grass and swings and all these things like that means something. And you're not going to be able to tell them that it doesn't mean something, especially since you don't actually know how you would deliver that to their neighborhood. And uh, why do, can I? Can we follow up on that? So, yeah. but the question is, for me is why? Why isn't? Why doesn't the mayor and why doesn't the those those in power in downtown find? A, why can't they find a way to deliver those services to the parks to the neighborhoods, other than the fact that they don't want to? Um, because. They don't know how. So, like, so here, here's here's one of the things, like, and it's my side pet passion, 
<laughs> um, so like there, I don't believe that there's a dog park in the city of Chicago south of 16th Street. Okay, um, and so you know, and so we really tried to get a dog park in Chatham. Okay, because folks gotta have dogs. You know, it'd be a nice place to want to be. <laughs> there whatever. are dogs in People Chatham. Do have dogs <laughs> in <the> South Side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, taking note. And, and, and you know, and. Just like what ends up happening is that, you know, you start talking about a dog park and then you have half the community coming out saying, oh, no, it's all pit bulls and it'll be dog fighting or, you know, and then there's like the money involved in like producing it, which like you could sort of fight for those resources. But then it's like space because the residents at most of the community parks are like, hey, I don't want to have all this dog poop near my house. And so when you add all those things together these things become complicated. And I think what it comes down to is, is that people don't really know how to fix it. And like, I think my main theme is, is that we could be helped more if more of the folks downtown, whether they were neoliberal, conservative, or progressive, saw black people as people, okay? You know, as a spectrum of folks who had different interests, different ideas, but really just wanted to go to work every day, come home, be able to buy groceries in their neighborhood, take care of their kids, and make sure that their children had a better future. Melanie Adcock spoke to the Nerdery Foundation's Greg Walrud and Ginger Savari Bucklin about the overnight website challenge and how nonprofits can be paired up with cutting-edge tech and tech advice. They also spoke about bunny suits. Tech Scene Chicago airs every Friday at 1 p.m. And what what led the nerdery as a company to create a separate non-for-profit foundation called the Nerdery Foundation, which you ginger lead, right? Can you exactly. tell us what was uh, incorporate what encompassed some of their thinking and decision making around that? Sure. Uh, the nerdery started in 2003 with a mission uh, to be the best place in the world for nerds to work. So uh, it was really part and parcel to that mission to start with. Um, not just bringing together nerds who are passionate about doing this work, but also who want to drive community and to want to make a difference. And so that sort of blossomed into what became the Nerdery Foundation because we saw not only the desire of nerds to want to make a difference, but those nerds wanting to come together and um, be a community. And Mm -hmm. so it was important that we took that step and and put some some boundaries around that and, and made a mission out of it. Now, what what is the mission of the Nerdery Foundation, and how long has it been open? So the Nerdery Foundation as an entity has been a nonprofit organization for a couple of years, but I'm its only employee, and I was just hired last summer. So we're rather Mm -hmm. new in terms of our our mission. Mm -hmm. And the mission is to activate technologists, those with technology skills, to better our world. So we want to really activate the passions and skills that these nerds have both within the nerdery and throughout our community um, to make a difference in the areas that they're passionate about. We know that uh, each person, each of us individually wants to make a difference, whether you're passionate about a health cause or animal rescue or STEM education, there's something you care about and you have high demand skills that hopefully we can help you use to improve your community in those areas. Okay, and then um, and then how how does this impact the the more corporate side of the nerdery? 
um, which is a, um, a, a for-profit company on the for-profit site. So they have their company and a non-for-profit arm. How, do, how does um, what you do, Ginger, impact the company? Well, I think we work very hard to bring the community of developers and technologists together, and that naturally helps um, the for-profit arm with how with its standing in the community, with awareness, and with being a place that brings uh, nerds and technologists together. Mm-hmm. So, on the, whether on the for-profit side or on the non-profit side, we're really focused on. Um, events and other ways that we can bring nerds together and make them feel an important part of the community. Sometimes developing you know, such a solitary task that it's great to feel like you're, you're part of a group that gets you and understands you and can help you move along in your career and in your life. Mm, yeah, and, and that's good. And, you know, I, I wanted to know about that because, you know, there, like, there are many, many companies out there who could do kind of some of the same things that, that your company does, but not every company has what you have, the, the, um, the for-profit and a whole non-for-profit arm. And so it makes it a, an interesting thing to talk about. Um, why don't more tech companies do what you do and have non-for-profit foundations attached to them? Well, I think it probably starts with that mission, with the uh, idea of what the organization was designed to do. Uh, A lot of uh, companies start with uh, something specifically about the product or the service that they're offering. And at the Nerdery, we started with the people and Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do for our employees and for the community of technologists together. So uh, we really feel like we're unique in that way, and we want to spread that approach um, Mm -hmm. throughout technology so that we're all thinking about what we can do together. Oh, yeah, I like that. So now now tell us a little bit about this overnight website challenge. Um, Who who goes to this and and what are they doing? Yeah, uh, we um, work on organizing uh, volunteers from throughout the technology community. So uh, volunteers who have technical skills, developers, designers, organize themselves into teams of 10 to 12 developers usually. Mm -hmm. And then we work to organize this 24-hour event that pairs each of those with a nonprofit that needs technical help. Mm -hmm. And then we generally create either a whole new website uh, in a 24-hour time frame or uh, some kind of of web portal or other web-based technology that helps that organization meet its mission. Something that they need. Um, And how how many years have you been doing this uh, overnight website challenge? Our first one was in 2008, and mm-hmm. uh, our next event in Chicago this weekend will this be weekend. our yeah will be our 16th event. 16th, wow! It has been that long since 2008. Oh my goodness! So you you, you guys do this event nationally and throughout the Midwest. It t- tell us your thoughts about the technology communities in in and throughout the Midwest, or or as the outsiders would call it, the the flyover states. Um, what 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 is your impression of just the overall tech? In the Midwest? Well, one of the things we love about our Midwest communities uh, in technology is that we do seem to have a natural uh, interest in community and being together and coming together and in bettering our world by helping the charities and the other organizations that need assistance. And so we really see um, 
a lot of passion and a lot of interest every time we we come to market. Of course, when we held our first overnight website challenge, there was a fear. You know, what if what if nobody signs up? Nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to volunteer 24 hours of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were dependent on the strength of those Midwest communities to drive our success. Mm-hmm. So we're we're just honored and humbled that so many people feel that way. Mm-hmm. I would also say I, I with that company when I was a geek with Geek Squad. Um, I got to, to travel the the world, the country, and spend a lot of time in you know the the Silicon Valleys, and I got to to live in China and, and get in, mm-hmm. involved in those tech communities there. And Ooh, and I I would say um, the talent in the Midwest uh, is just as strong, in, in my opinion, if not better, uh, than what you'll find out there. And I think uh, to echo what what Ginger was saying, so many of them are so passionate, involved in their communities, and mm-hmm. I, I think that. That bleeds into the work that they do, that they take so much pride uh, in, in the software that they're developing for their clients that they often care just as much about their uh, client as if, as if it were their own uh, a project. And I think that comes from that sense of pride of growing up in that, that Midwest, or a mm-hmm. lot of us in the Midwest came from like the Rust Belt of Ohio mm-hmm. or Michigan. And I think that sense of pride comes from, comes from growing up in those communities. This is kind of fun. We're going to get really nerdy here for a minute. All right. Uh, <laughs> before our event, and one of the magic elements of this event is trying to pair the right nonprofit with the right team. So we do a couple things to make that happen. The first is we pair each of these nonprofits with a strategist planner who can come out to on site and help them think through their current technology platform and some of the things they're looking to get done. And then we hold a speed dating night where mm-hmm. each of these nonprofits meet each of the teams, and then they provide ranking scorecards across a number of different criteria for us on how well they'd work and, and their technical compatibility with some of these teams. Mm-hmm. And then we take that back and we built a genetic algorithm, which is uh, an algorithm that's based on uh, – the concepts of, uh, of evolutionary theory. So it actually looks at sort of the survival of the fittest to test different pairings and then come up with the ideal pairing solutions. So that's how we do the, the pairings of nonprofits and teams. Wow. That, is, that sounds like it could be its own uh, reality TV show right there. That is, that is very <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> I love that. And so, uh, so you've explained, you know, a few things. So now when... These people stay overnight for this website challenge. What happens when all of these developers start to get delirious? Um, and, and does anyone wear uh, bunny slippers? They definitely do. We've actually had someone wear a complete bunny outfit. He came out at about midnight, had changed from his, his day outfit into a head-to-toe pink bunny pajamas with ears and everything. White or pink? Pink. pink. It was pink. Lumpen Radio's literature show, I-94, spoke with reporter Ed Comenda about the true crime genre, Gary Gilmore, and the strange attraction that killers have on the American psyche. I-94, hosted by Jeremy Kitchen, Mike Sack, and Jamie Trucker, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. You know, it's interesting we're talking about authors being attracted to crime. We have in the studio, as we mentioned, Ed Comenda, who's made quite a career of covering crime. So we kind of wanted to get your take on this genre and what attracts reporters and people like yourself to covering uh, this beat, so to speak, Ed. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I was a crime reporter full-time in South Florida, which is <laughs> sort of like the uh, pressure cooker for crime in America. I mean, you're surrounded by water. It's hot. 
people are usually on the run towards something or from something, <laughs> and they run into each other. And um, when I was there, I, I wrote about crime every day. I'd wake up and call the cop shop at 6 in the morning to see what the most interesting, crazy, wild police report they had from from the weekend or the night before. And editors loved it because readers loved it. There was something to be said about reading stories about the strange the strange happenings in the neighborhood. And it was the same in, in Bridgeport. Uh, the most popular stories I wrote here were the ones of murder and theft and just strange stuff. I'm, we did a story um, once about grease bandits, you know, people who would go behind, you know, the, the local hamburger shop and steal grease, which would be, you know, repurposed. And um, I think that there's what attracts me to it is we're talking about real people, um, people that have family members where you could go and knock on their door. And as Jeremy said, you get a window into the brain of the of the murderer or the, uh, the thief. And um, when you do it successfully, you get a really cool product, which is, you know, a, um, a window into the brain of these these people. And uh, that's what attracts me to it. And I think that's what attracts a lot of people to it. Interesting stuff, because I think that on the the side of the readers, when I started out, I actually did Mork Beat in upstate New York and uh, cop shop stuff as well. It's it, There's a grim fascination, uh, I think, for a lot of people being a voyeur, so to speak, to see how people that you could live next to or that you could know or you could run into uh, commit acts that uh, at their worst can be almost inhuman. And of course, in, in Broward County, uh, that's uh, ground zero for, for high weirdness. Yeah, absolutely. One of the strangest stories I ever wrote down in Broward County was um, uh, a woman met her estranged um, husband to um, exchange the kid. You know, it was a um, child custody thing. And there was a, I, I found a, a surveillance video tape of this woman, um, walking out of frame and all of a sudden you see this burst of light from the edges of the of the film and you see her run into the frame and she's on fire and the gentleman who met her in the parking lot doused her in gasoline and then lit her on fire i went to the neighborhood the next day after she survived and he was in jail i went to the neighborhood and it was a haitian gentleman who uh, the week before he attacked her with a with a can of gasoline and matches, he was performing um, uh, voodoo rituals in the neighborhood. He'd walk up to people and give them um, a dollar out of his pocket, and but three of the corners would have been burnt off of the dollar because it was in his view a way to give luck to people. He was trying to do as much good as he could before he murdered his ex-wife she must have been really lucky then huh <laughs> did she have a lot of luck before then <laughs> oh man it was it was strange what was strange wow. here's the strangest part about it I, I knocked on one door and the family there told me that this guy would give the kids ice cream every week whenever they would see this guy it, their their lives would 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 brighten because he would give them sweets he was he was known as a nice guy in the neighborhood but then he set someone on fire Quick question for Ed. Ed, you rode with Clive and Bundy. And how long were you with those guys? About a week. Did you feel like that a lot of those guys were just kind of like normal guys, except they were just like, I hate the government? Or were they really scary? 
I mean, the guy who brought me into their camp in the desert in Bunkerville, Nevada, <laughs> yeah. uh, he had a um, a Marine rifle between his knees. You know, I read he, your article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, I the first thing I see was a fifty caliber rifle in the camp. You know, so I'm surrounded by guns. These guys spoke with um, with an attitude that suggested that they would fight if they had to. Um, I mean. There were guys pointing guns at people driving down the road, thinking that they were police. There was a lot of par- paranoia there. I read the the in your article. They saw it was like a tricked out Mazda with rims or something. They're like, oh no, it's not a cop. Yeah, that don't, ain't don't, no cop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, it was strange. I mean, I never felt afraid. That's that's not totally true. I mean, <laughs> in, in, in the very in the very beginning in the in the very beginning there were some feelings of of apprehension about the whole thing. But the more I, more time I spent with them, the more time I had to, to relate to them in a lot of ways. We would talk about family back at home. We'd talk about, you know, what are you guys, you know, what are you guys eating out here, you know? And we sort of closed the gap as people. I, I'm not a person that would go out with a gun and, and, you know, wait for the cops to show up. And try up. to take over the government, as the, as the Bundys <laughs> did. Just for people that don't know, yeah. we're talking about the uh, Bundy standoff in, in the Midwest that was finally yeah. broken up by the federal government. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, 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 didn't, we didn't have common ground there, but as people, and you mentioned reading about Gary Gilmore, and I'm not saying that the, the militiamen were, were, were evil men. They were just capable of something. A lot of, a lot of times because of their military background, such as shooting people, that that I couldn't relate to, but it was fascinating to 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 hang out with those those men, and they were mostly men, <laughs> a, a lot of emotion or a lot of uh, testosterone, a lot of anger, um, and it was it was very interesting to see. Have you met uh, criminals or wrongdoers that were that magnetic and that in control, kind of of their own narrative? Uh, actually, yeah. Um, a lot of these guys seemed to be very eloquent and, and, and good with words. There was one guy, um, John Goodman, in, in South Florida who— Not, not the John Goodman. No, not the John. Another one. Hardy's in Chicago filming, by the way. <laughs> no, he's a, he's a millionaire uh, real estate guy in, in South Florida, and he, he was in court for, um, for uh, getting hammered. And th- this, is, this isn't as bad as somebody like— um, Gary Gilmore, but uh, he drove a car and he crashed it and the guy died in the car and he kind of left the guy to die. <clears throat> and he was extremely intelligent and he represented himself. I mean, we hear these stories all the time. Ted Bundy, he was a lawyer, uh, extremely smart, also a murderer. Um, I find that most of the criminals I've talked to in interviews, they they have a way of speaking that... that uh, speaks to um, being a survivor. These guys know how to talk and how to survive. And somebody like Gary Gilmore, who is, you know, he, he blew away a gas station attendant. I mean, he was doing what he had to do in his mind. And, uh, you know, th- that's a common trait, I feel, for a lot of these, these people. Is they figure out a way to talk, uh, a way to be charismatic, uh, a way to make friends and uh, seek forgiveness or... Um, stoke sympathy, you know, and that's that's a common story we hear all the time.
The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.